Welcome back to our study of the Psalms. We are in Psalm number 8 today, and we're just going to jump right in and dig into this psalm. This is uh, one of the more familiar psalms. You probably will recognize the opening line, which is echoed in the closing line. It begins like this. It tells us, of course, uh, that this is a psalm of David, and it says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So the psalm begins and ends uh, talking about God's majesty or how majestic is your name in all the earth and god's name of course uh stands for who he is his character right so it's talking about god's glory god's greatness god's reputation and david points out uh, that his name is majestic in all the earth not just in israel because god is not merely the god of israel he's not a local god he's the god who created the heavens and the earth. He's the God who is the Lord over the heaven and the earth, and he rules over the whole world. And so his name uh, is majestic in all the earth. And then he says, you have set your glory above the heavens, which could be uh, tying into like what uh, Psalm 19 talks about, how the heavens declare the glory of God, uh, that we see God's glory and majesty uh, in the heavens. And uh, so he's talking about the majesty of God, uh, the glory of God. And then in verse 2, he talks about how God has established uh, strength in weakness. And he's done this particularly through children. He says, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. Now, um, I don't know how long ago, quite a while ago, uh, I feel like I learned um from uh, Jim Hamilton, the connection between this and the promise in Genesis 3.15, when God said that uh, a child would be born who would come from the woman, right, an offspring of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. That's that's God's gospel promise, right, from the beginning, what we call the, the first gospel, the proto-evangelium. So <clears throat> when he talks about, when David talks about how God has established strength, because of his enemies, right, through the mouths of babies and infants, it's tied back to that promise that God would send a child, a baby, into the world who would crush the head of the serpent, who would conquer our enemy. Uh, David talks about this as, or he, um, Isaiah talks about this as well in uh, Isaiah chapter 9, where he says, uh, you know, to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And he talks about what that son is going to be like in what the coming of that son has accomplished. And so um, that's what he seems to be tying in here. And that fits with, um, with what we see next in verse three and four, where it says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, 
What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man and the son of man that you care for him? So Hamilton points this out too, how this, these strong connections to creation, I think, uh, I think he mentions, but it's clearly there, right? Verse 3, that um, when you look up at the sky, you look at the things that God has made, what God has created. And uh, all of us have probably had this experience, right? Where we, we look up at the stars on a clear night and we just, we feel small. We feel insignificant. We, we become aware of how vast the universe is um, and how small we are in it. And that's what David seems to be talking about, right? In light of all these huge, magnificent things, God, that you have made, why do you care about us? We are so small. We are so insignificant. I, I don't know if you have had a chance to look yet at some of the images that have come from the new uh, James Webb telescope. For many years, of course, we uh, could see images from the Hubble telescope that were uh, amazing and marvelous. And now there's an even better telescope that can even see even farther called the James Webb telescope. And I was looking at it with one of my, uh, looking at some of those pictures with one of my sons the other day. Um, one of the pictures we saw, and I, I'm not a scientist, so I can't interpret everything that was in it, but it looked like in this picture were many galaxies. Some of them were probably individual stars, but it looked like there were uh, multiple galaxies in this picture. And, and the, the little write-up about the picture said that if you took a single grain of sand and you put it on one of your fingers and then you held it out at arm's length from your face and you put that single grain of sand on your fingertip between uh, your eye and a particular part of the night sky, that single grain of sand would cover up everything that was in that picture. And there were so many, again, stars, perhaps even multiple galaxies in this picture. Uh, Things like that help us begin to get a grasp on how magnificent, right, how vast the universe is. And God made all of that, and yet he cares about us. David marvels at, at the fact that God cares about us, that God's interested in us, uh, but he doesn't deny it. He doesn't look at the universe and say, God can't care about us. He looks at the universe and says, it's amazing that you care about us. I don't understand why you care about us but clearly god does and then he says um verse five yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor here i think david is talking about the fact that god has made us in his image that we're a little lower than the heavenly beings or than the angels right but but we're made in the image of god so we're above all the other creatures we're above the beasts and the fish and the birds, which he's going to talk about a little bit. We're above all of those because we alone, out of all the rest of God's creation, have been made in the image of God. So we have a special position, a special place that God has given us. And we see this in Genesis 1, where the climax of God's act of creation is not creating the stars. It's not separating the dry land and the seas. It's not creating the, the great beasts of the field. It's creating man in his image. That's the climax of the creation story. And so that's what he seems to be reflecting on there in verse 5. Then in verse 6, he says, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, 
and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. Now, uh, this is uh, clearly reflecting on Genesis as well, because in Genesis 1.26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, which is what we were just talking about, after our likeness. And then it says, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So he, David reflects on this position that God has given us in his creation as those who have dominion, who um, one person has put it as though we are uh, vice regents, right? We rule under God on God's behalf over the things that God has made. So that's what David's reflecting on when he returns again in verse 9 to this, uh, this statement about God's majesty. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, this psalm or a portion of this psalm is quoted in the book of Hebrews. And it is uh, tied to Jesus. It's in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. I'm just going to read this passage. And as I'm reading it, and you're listening to it, think about what it is about these verses that uh, enabled the author of Hebrews to make this connection to Christ. Right? He says, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, and then here's where he quotes Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And then he says, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering and death, so that by the grace of God he might taste, taste death for everyone. Okay, so how is it that the writer of Hebrews is able to connect that psalm to Jesus? Well, first of all, in Luke 24, Jesus tells us that everything written about him in the psalms has to be fulfilled. So we know that the psalms talk about Jesus. Uh, we also uh, might notice that there at the end of verse uh, 4, the psalmist, David, uses this phrase, the son of man, right? What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Now, in one sense, that's just uh, poetry, right? We, especially in Hebrew poetry, we say the same thing in slightly different ways. One line you say man, one line you say son of man, one uh, line you say mindful of him, one line you say care for him. They mean essentially the same thing. But it's not insignificant that Jesus' um, title that he used for himself often, right, was Son of Man. So there's another connection to Jesus. And then, of course, this psalm is about man and man's place in the cosmos, in God's creation. And Jesus became man, right? He's the eternal Son of God who at a particular time took on flesh and was born as a man. Uh, and lived among us, right? John says uh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. So all three of those ways are ways that we can connect Psalm 8 to Jesus. And what the writer of Hebrews does is um, he talks about either Jesus in particular or humanity and Jesus kind of together. It's, it's a little bit hard to 
to uh, to pull some of this apart. I think some of it refers to both, right? Where he says, um, you know, now in putting in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Is that talking about humanity or is that talking about Jesus? I think on the one hand, we could say it's talking about humanity, that God did put all creation right under our dominion, the birds and the beasts and the animals and, and the, uh, the fish and so on. Uh, he did put those things um, under our care, right? He gave us dominion over them. And yet, because of the fall, we don't exercise that dominion. Uh, and, and to a certain extent, I think we could say can't exercise that dominion the way it was originally intended. Because now the world is broken, and uh, some of those creatures God gave us dominion over are now quite dangerous to us, right? Now, we do have dominion over them in a, in a sense still. The dominion hasn't been taken away, but it's not being exercised the way God intended in the Garden of Eden, right? Um, so I think we can say that that does apply to humanity, but it's, there's also a sense in which it applies specifically to Jesus, because the Bible is very clear that God has put absolutely everything um, under subjection to Jesus, put everything under his feet. Um, and so that's the case, but at the same time, we can look around and see, like, well, it doesn't, it doesn't look like everything is under subjection to Jesus because not everyone is doing what Jesus says, and not everything has been set right. There's a sense in which Jesus is ruling and reigning from heaven and has everything under his feet. That is true, but there's another sense in which um, that hasn't been fully put into um, practical effect, we could say. Um, for example, like in 1 Corinthians 15, it says, uh, that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Well, there's a sense in which Jesus already reigns over death because he already conquered it in his own resurrection. But there's a sense in which death hasn't yet been banished as it will be at Christ's return when all of his people are raised from the dead and death is no more. So everything is in subjection to Jesus, but not, not yet practically in the full sense that it will be when Jesus returns. And then the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. So now we know for sure we're talking specifically about Jesus. Yes, humanity was made a little lower than the angels because we were made in the image of God. In what sense is Jesus for a little while made lower than the angels? Well, Jesus was not uh, made in the image of God like we were because Jesus was not made. He just is the image of God, the perfect, eternal image of God. He was made a little lower than the angels uh, when he took on flesh and was born as a man. When he took on humanity and was born among us, in a sense, right, he's, he is still God, right? So he's still greater than the angels. But in a sense, right, he has, hum he has truly humbled himself and in a sense made himself lower than the angels by taking upon himself flesh and blood, being born as a man, living among us. And then he says that he was crowned with glory and honor. For us, that crown is being made in the image of God. For Jesus, he says, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So here I think he's talking about how Jesus was exalted, crowned, glorified, honored after his death through his resurrection and then his ascension into heaven and his session where he's seated at God's right hand. That's his exaltation where he was exalted he was 
uh, lifted up because of the suffering of death. And all this really follows what Paul says about Jesus in Philippians 2. That he was in the form of God. They didn't count equality with God something to be grasped. But instead he humbled himself, uh, taking the form of a servant, all right, taking uh, upon himself flesh and blood, being born as a man. Uh, he humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death. Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, uh, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's essentially what the writer of Hebrews, I think, is talking about here as well. And he sees some of that in Psalm 8. So once we have seen that in Psalm 8, thanks to the help of the writer of Hebrews, here are three things that we can take away from Psalm 8 for our own worship, our own prayers. Uh, first, we can, with David, uh, behold the majesty of God on display in creation. We can look up at the stars, look at the sky, look at the pictures from the James Webb Telescope, and be in awe of what God has made, how mighty, how powerful, how wise, how good he is. And second, we can marvel that God made us in his image, that though we're so small and seemingly insignificant in light of the, the vastness of the cosmos, that God does care about us. God uh, does love us. Uh, God gave us the special privilege of being made in his image, making us a little lower than the angels, right? Crowning us with glory and honor. That's something to be amazed at uh, and to marvel at. Uh, and then finally, we can wonder at the mystery of God become man for our sake. Uh, be amazed that God not only made us in his image, but also sent his son for us to save us, to forgive us, to cleanse us, to make us new. The God who made the universe, who didn't have to make us, but did, not only did, but made us in his image, also loved us even after we rebelled against him and sinned against him and were ungrateful toward him after all he'd done for us. He still loved us, even to the point of sending his own son for us. All of those are things that we should marvel at, we should wonder at, and that ought to give rise to praise and worship and adoration of our God. God bless.